and the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. I think one of the most common games that children play and adults play with children is hide and go seek. A great game where, well, you know how it works. Somebody counts to 10 or 20 or 100 or some other number and at the end of it says, coming, ready or not. And while that person is counting, you're feverishly trying to work out a great place to hide. I always found playing with my children that the little ones were the easiest to find, partly because they were not that good at finding good hiding places. But also, when they were really little, they would squeal with delight at their great hiding place, and you could usually work out where they were from that. And the older ones, well, they were a little harder to find because they were, were wiser and sneakier, and they worked out that you weren't supposed to squeal. But every now and again, when you were trying to find the best hiding place, hearing that coming ready or not wasn't the greatest news, because you had yet to find the greatest hiding place, and in fact, because you were looking for the greatest hiding place, you actually hadn't found any hiding place, and you were just out there in the open, ready to be found at any moment. A great game. Well, the passage we heard from Isaiah this morning can be understood as God has finished counting and has said, coming, ready or not. The passage we heard comes from what is called 2nd Isaiah. So last week's passage came from 3rd Isaiah. So there are three chunks of Isaiah. The first chunk, about the first 39 chapters, was written by the prophet Isaiah and is to the people who... Uh, still are in the land, and uh, but it's all turned into custard, and it's a it's a prophecy of doom and hope. If you carry on this way, you will be crushed. Uh, but if you change your ways, there is hope. And then Second Isaiah, which is from chapters forty to fifty-five, is is clearly written for people who have already suffered the destruction and are now in exile. And then third Isaiah, which we heard last week, is addressed, which is 55 to the end, uh, 56 to the end, is addressed to those who have been in exile and have returned home, and it didn't really pan out as they were hoping. So they each have their own focuses. And second Isaiah is to a group of people who have been in exile, and they can see what's happening in the world. And what they can see happening in the world is that the Babylonians are losing their power, and the Persians are slowly and eventually quite rapidly eating away at them and will defeat them. It's inevitable. And so they're trying to make sense of this. They're trying to make sense of what's happening in the world in terms of their understanding of who they are and who God is. And so there is this image that, well, one of the basic underlying things that runs right through the scriptures is that God is sovereign. God is in charge of everything. And so the understanding then was that because the people had missed, well, they had to understand how the exile had happened. And so the exile happened, if God is in charge and God had allowed 
the Babylonians to, well, the Assyrians to destroy the northern kingdom and the Babylonians to destroy the southern kingdom, then, then clearly that was because the people of God were misbehaving. They were not living as they should live. So God had allowed this to happen, and they'd all been taken away into exile. But now it would seem that the exile was about to end because the Persians were known to let those who had been taken into exile to return home. So God is in charge. That's a great thing. God is going to let them all go home. The only trouble was that if they were honest, those Jews in Babylonia would be able to tell you that actually not a lot had changed since when they'd left Jerusalem. Sure, there was still a group who were truly devout, who, who uh, as much as possible followed the laws, uh, who uh, worshipped God at all the appropriate times, and, uh, and could, stood out because of their devotion. But there was another chunk who paid lip service to devotion to God, who paid lip service to the laws. And then there were those who had abandoned worship of God altogether and had decided that the Babylonian gods were clearly much more powerful than their god and so they were worshipping the Babylonian gods and in particular Marduk, the chief god. Not a lot had changed from when they were in Jerusalem. So how were they to make sense of this in Jerusalem, it all fell apart because they were misbehaving, but they were still misbehaving, and yet it all seemed to be about to change and they were going to go home. How were they to understand this? And so they were being faced with the prospect of having to rethink their theology. And their theology was beginning to understand that maybe this God wasn't just a God of Reward for good behaviour, punishment for bad behaviour, but maybe this God was a God of grace. A God who forgave you even when you were still misbehaving. A God who continued to love you even when you were behaving in ways that wasn't that lovable. And so we have the beginnings of the understanding that God is a forgiving God. God is a merciful God. And so we have these two strong themes running through this passage. God's sovereignty, God is in charge of everything. And God's grace, God forgives us even when, well, even when we don't deserve it. And so it is suggested that one of the ways we can understand this passage is God is coming ready or not. Now we often read this as a voice cries out and then there's a little bit of confusion between the two versions of the Old Testament, the, the Greek version and the Hebrew version, whether the voice is in the wilderness or the way of being prepared is in the wilderness, but that's, well, that's kind of academic really. But it's, you know, we have to prepare the way. But some commentators say, no, we're not the ones preparing the way, it is God who is preparing the way. God is rushing headlong towards us, coming, ready or not, and nothing will get in the way of God. Not mountains, not valleys, not deserts, not wildernesses, nothing gets in the way of God. God is coming, ready or not. 
which is a grand image and a little frightening image if you're trying to find the best hiding place and you still haven't quite found it. Well, that's Isaiah. This passage from Isaiah was one of the passages that uh, that those who were looking for the longed-for Messiah, the one who would save the people of God, used as their um, as their touchstone. And so, Mark in the Gospel we heard this morning does a very sneaky thing, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But first of all, here's a question. Just to kind of keep us all on our toes. How many gospel writers talk about, have a Christmas story? Two? We've got two? Any advances on two? That's good, two. So I did talk about this last Christmas. There were a variety of answers. But it is two, Matthew and Luke. Are their stories the same? Not totally. They do agree that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth. But that's about it, really. So Matthew, Mary and Joseph lived in Bethlehem. So there was no census, there's no no room in the inn, there's none of that stuff, because they're, they're already in Bethlehem. They just have a baby. But then Matthew has to get them from Bethlehem to Nazareth. So he's the one that has the three, well, wise men. The three came in later. Um, A number of wise men came who brought three gifts. And the wise men go to see Herod, and Herod gets all grumpy. There's killing of children. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus flee to Egypt. And then after Herod dies, they go to Nazareth because they think that's going to be safer. And that works for Matthew because, in part, he's trying to kind of show how Jesus is the new Joseph, uh, the new Moses, who goes down to Egypt and then comes out of Egypt back up into the Promised Land. But Luke, Luke has them starting. They're natives of Nazareth. So how does he get them from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Well, he has a census. So that's where we get no room in it and all that kind of stuff. And so Luke doesn't have wise men, magi, doesn't need them. He has shepherds. And so instead he's really focusing on the humble origins of Jesus, how he came from amongst the poorest, and it was the poorest who came to adore him, not the rich and powerful. So, and then they just go home. They don't go to Egypt, they just kind of go to Jerusalem and do the sacrifice and amble home because there's no pressure on them here. It's not all grumpy. So two different Christmas stories that we've smushed together, but we need to pull them apart to actually see why they're there. John and Mark, they don't have Christmas stories. John starts at the beginning of time, in the beginning, and by the in the beginning he means right at the beginning, and Mark starts with John the Baptist. Now, Matthew and Luke, right at the beginning of their Gospels, they want to establish Jesus' whakapapa, his genealogy, and they want to show that, and they link all that back, and then they tell the birth stories. 
Mark's not interested in Papa. He's interested instead in showing how Jesus meets all the requirements about the Messiah. And in particular, which thinking, which school of Messiahship Jesus belongs to. And so in that, the first line there, um, which I can't remember, which is probably more likely to be the title. It's not really the first line of the Gospel, it's the title of the Gospel. But we then called it the Gospel of Mark, so you could call that the subtitle. So the first real line of Mark's Gospel is, as the prophet Isaiah said, and then he quotes a piece, which actually doesn't come from Isaiah. So that's pretty sneaky. It comes from Deuteronomy. And so by doing that, he then links John with Moses. So there are a few kind of ideas happening around who the Messiah would be and what would happen beforehand. And one of the ideas was that Moses would come back. So he links John with Moses by quoting Deuteronomy. But kind of lurking in that first line is also Malachi. And Malachi said that Elijah would come back before before the Messiah came. So in doing so, he's also giving a little nod to, actually, John is also Elijah coming back amongst us. And then he quotes the passage from Isaiah, which we heard this morning, and he says, and John is the one preparing the way. So he is firmly anchoring John and Jesus into that understanding of who the Messiah is. A story which is all about God coming ready or not. And in most people's cases, it was more kind of not than ready. But there were people who were really working hard to prepare the way by being ready. And so the Essenes took this passage from Isaiah very seriously, and they went out into the wilderness, and they were the most devout, the most holy people. And their understanding was if they were devout enough and holy enough, they would prepare the way and the Messiah would come. So there's a kind of, yes, that's what who Jesus and John, John rule about, but their understanding of it is slightly different. There is some thinking that John actually was in the scene at one point. So, but he came out of that and, and did some different things. So there's, you can see Mark who's kind of saying, well, there's all these traditions going on, and he's trying to pull them all in and say, and Jesus is the one who fulfills them all, but particularly the one from Isaiah. So he's kind of establishing Jesus' whakapapa in a different way. He's saying his whakapapa goes through these stories here. This is who Jesus is. He's establishing Jesus' credentials. All in those first two lines. It's really well done. But we miss it because we don't know all that backstory. So we think, oh, that's a nice beginning. We miss the fact that actually when he says, as the prophet Isaiah says, and then he quotes Deuteronomy, you have to know your scriptures, which they did. Remember, they all those boys, they memorized the Torah. That's what they spent their first six years, uh, six to ten doing, memorizing the Torah. They would have gone, oh, wait a minute, that's from Deuteronomy. What's he on about? Well, what does all that do for us? The reality is, I'm not sure how ready we are 
I mean, if we were honest, how ready are we? Coming ready or not? Well, I know that I'm not ready for Christmas, but if I was to look at my life and think, am I ready for the coming of the Messiah? The answer would be, "Mm, probably not, actually. Probably not. And then the next question is, what is it that we hope for? Now, all those people who were looking for the Messiah that Mark was writing to, they had been looking for someone who was going to come and get rid of the Romans. And probably get rid of the high priests. The high priests weren't universally loved. In fact, most people didn't like them at all, including some of the other priests. They were seen as corrupt and Roman collaborators, more interested in their own wealth than serving God. So they would have been looking for someone who would come, get rid of the Romans, get rid of the high priests, which is exactly what happens at the beginning of the Jewish revolt in in the late 60s, and establishes a new kingdom with a new group of priests who will serve God, and God will, because they've prepared the way, God will honour that, and it will be a new entity. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't meet their hopes or dreams or expectations. And so Mark is trying to kind of gently see, say, well, this is what people hope for, and this is actually what God was really on about. Coming, ready or not. You want these things? Actually, that's not what God wants at all. You might be hiding here, but actually God is playing a completely different game. So, what are our hopes and dreams? And how is God subverting those this Advent? What is it that we look for? And what is it that we really should be looking for? Today is, um, we lit the peace candle. A day we think about God's peace. What does God's peace look like in our lives? What does God's peace look like in our world? And how are we being invited to help create that peace? God is coming, ready or not. How do we join in with God in that coming? How do we become peacemakers with God? So as we journey to Christmas, may we be People whose hopes and dreams are shaped by God's hopes and dreams and not our desires and wants. And may we become peacemakers with God.